0: Father, we thank you that you have spoken clearly to us in your word, and every page reveals something of the Lord Jesus Christ, and altogether it gives us this glorious story of redemption where you have entered into history to undo what we have messed up. We thank you, Father, for the grace that you have shown us, the compassion that you lavish upon us day after day, the way you care for us, and even now through teaching us from your word, you equip us and enable us to better understand what it is that we most long for, which is your Son, Jesus Christ, He whom we most need and indeed whom we most want. And we ask this, Father, in His name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, we're continuing with the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. I know most of you have the catechism memorized, but for those who are visiting and so on, we invite you to turn in either your pocket copies that I know you all keep in your breast pocket, your phone, or just use the the Trinity Hymnal uh, in front of you. It's uh, roughly, uh, we're going to be looking at questions 42 through 44 today. So it's roughly page 870. Uh, if somebody can correct me on exactly what that is, maybe we've moved to 871 by now. But 872, is it? Uh, we're going to do 42, 43, and 44. 872, all right. Uh, now, last week we ended with question 42. This time we're going to start with question 42 and go through 44. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to cover. I wrote some uh, scripture passages before we read the catechism question. Can I ask some folks to take these passages and have them ready to just read? So, could I get a Matthew five seventeen through nineteen, Tanya? Thank you. How about a John fourteen fifteen verse twenty one? Got that one? Thank you, Rob. First John five three takers. Okay, Luke twelve forty eight back here. Peggy, you keep raising your hand. I'm sorry. I keep missing you. How about Matthew How about Matthew 4.10? Okay, do we have a James 2.10 here? And Colossians 3.5. Thank you, Andrew. All right, so that should cover us. And uh, yeah, if you can just have those ready, we'll be good to go. I was going to fill these in, but we'll fill them in as we work. So let's go ahead and, and read. Uh, if you're not reading the scripture, uh, can I ask somebody to read? Uh, All the might as well just do it in one shot. Questions 42 through 44 with the answers. Do we have a taker for that? All right. Thank you, Andrew. So um, again, we're going to take all these together as we look uh, uh, at the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're going to start from this point on. The Catechism gets into each of those commandments and looks at them in detail. So this is just sort of setting the overlay, what we can say about all of them uh, together. Now, last week, you know, we studied the fact that God has revealed His will, and that will is The moral law and we find that law summarily comprehended to use the catechism language in the ten commandments and like we looked at that law then is god's revelation it is god's revealed will so there is no god's will and also the ten commandments for us it's they're one and the same so we looked at that we talked about there's also ceremonial law civil law those are old testament types of laws that have been abrogated with the coming of christ uh, we won't get into, you know, the how and the why today since we did that last week. But what we have before us now is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and we want to unpack uh, that little a little bit more today. So as we look at these catechism questions, it points out two very important things that we're going to be uh, setting up our discussion along these lines. First is that love is intimately tied to the law. In fact... Love is the fulfillment of the law, if you want to put it that way. And then the second thing we're going to see is that when a person is saved by grace, by God, that doesn't excuse them from the law. In fact, it makes them more beholden to keep the law than others. So those are, that's, those are kind of the things we're going to be looking at today. So let's start with the very first of the things that we see. We're all familiar with the summary of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, we won't look it up here, but Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 is what Jesus tells us. That you're to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So you have this. Um, well, I left myself with little room, huh? You have yourself this 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 dynamic where you love God. You're vertical, as you will, and then, if I can just fit it in here, neighbor. And on a horizontal level, you know, you're loving the people around you. And what's amazing about that answer is that this is, is, again, a summary of the Ten Commandments. And so people tend to say wrongly that the Ten Commandments is legal and dry and, you know, it's all about, you know, rules and all this stuff. But love is something completely different. Love is, you know, ooh, that sounded more... Okay, So they want to separate, and yet Jesus tells us that loving God summarizes the Ten Commandments. Loving your neighbor summarizes the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments have at their heart, the execution of the Ten Commandments, have at their heart the idea of loving others. And that's an extraordinarily important um, uh, concept for us to grasp because once we take that in, it changes how we look at the law. It's not like, oh, I guess I better not cheat on my wife. I guess I better not steal. Oh, you know, it's always reducing my fun. This is actually seen as a positive expression of love towards God and neighbor. So love is this central component. There's been a whole um, slew of folks <clears throat> just in, in recent, and I say recent, let's just say the last hundred years. Uh, well, you know, it was because those things still affect us and, you know, not to say that Anselm's you know, writing in the 4th century or uh, you know, Boniface or whatever those guys did doesn't affect us theologically, but let's just say in the last 100 years, there's been a lot of folks who have been teaching that you have the requirements of, the lo- of, of love over here and you have requirements of the requirements of the law over there and that sometimes those two don't, don't meet. So you might, for example, uh, need to lie out of love. So I need to protect you, so I lie. Right? And in so doing... Um, yeah you know I end up setting aside uh, the do not lie portion of the Ten Commandments but it was necessary because of love Uh, or I'm so hungry that I have to steal I have to feed my family so I will steal and at first blush that sounds like well yeah you love your family um, you know so you therefore break the law and this has been uh, put out, it got put out by, by who else? Liberal theologians. They weren't called liberals yet, but the modernist theologians at the beginning of the 20th century. <clears throat> and by the end of, um, uh, shortly after World War II, it starts infiltrating into the evangelical world. And so by the 70s, it's getting here. So this has been called. Some of these terms you'll you'll know. The new morality, which is not a term we hear much. I read more of that in technical theological writings. I don't hear people using it. The term that seems to have stuck. Pretty much from the 60s on is situational ethics ever heard that situational ethics so the and then there's other terms but those are the two big ones the numerality, situational ethics the idea is that you have to look at the situation and determine whether you follow God's law or whether you follow the law of love and Jesus was all about the law of love now by the way you've noticed this pattern as we've gone through this catechism class that I often will talk about, you know, what's being taught in mainstream circles, and then I've pointed out. But it hasn't been so much the case in the last twenty-five to thirty years, because somewhere in the mid-nineties, they they really just stopped trying to justify themselves from Scripture. They really did. Uh, you know, you take the, the the topic of homosexuality, you see them bending themselves over, you know, backwards through the seventies and through the eighties. Uh, some of you will remember Bishop Shelby Spong and all that writing all these things, trying to explain how the scripture, you know, it's patriarchal, or it's this, or Paul didn't really mean that, or it. and then somewhere in the 90s they you said, ah, the heck with it, we're just going to do whatever we want. Obviously, like everything else, I'm painting with a broad brushstroke. there still may be some folks sitting in mainline churches who do try to exegete and contort and all that, but many of them just said, yeah, it's, we're just going to ignore it, because it's just wrong, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, so... Um, you may not even find some people today even caring about what we're talking about but for a long time there has been this desire to separate the two is that justified does that work can you in fact have following love as opposed to what the bible uh, to what um, the law says well <clears throat> let's take a look at what jesus again because they always bring out jesus is all about love and if you have to give up the law you do it so let's use jesus words who's got the matthew 5:17 passage all right, so there's Jesus' attitude about the law. And he's like, hey guys, if you had any idea that I'm coming here to remove the law, and just forget it. Because he says nothing of the law is going to pass away until it's all completely fulfilled. In fact, the person who breaks the law is the one on, you know who I'm not going to be too happy with. You're expected to keep the law. And he warns us against that. So Jesus' attitude is... Absolutely unequivocal here. He does not sit there and say, well, you know, situational ethic. No, very clear, very, very clear. So let's start with that. Um, Now, you might say, but wait a minute. Sometimes he would say, you have heard it said, but I say, right? That's a little thing that happens again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you have added all these traditions. You have added these interpretations where you've gone further than the Bible. You know, it's, it's, it happens all the time. Christians today, same thing. Uh, just like the Jews back then, we become wiser than the Holy Spirit. So, you know, take something like the Scripture says that we're not to get drunk. And so then we sit there and say, well, that's a good start, Holy Spirit. Now let me add John's law. Don't drink at all. You know, that kind of thing. And so we can't do that. We have to stay within bounds of what Scripture teaches and that's what Jesus knocks down many times. is the traditions of men, uh, the additions which had been added to and so on. But, um, but he has no wiggle room on the law. Who's got Matthew 5? Oh, we didn't write Matthew 5.48, did we? No, no it's Matthew 5.48. I forgot to um, put that on there. Can somebody uh, track that one? Yeah, so again, Jesus' words. He's not sitting there and saying, yeah, you know, it's okay. You know, God's, the father's like this grandfather dude and he's gonna sit there and, no. That's the standard. Okay, so there we are. Now let's go back to more words from Jesus. This time we're gonna look at um, John 14. And before we read that, Jesus not only expects the law to be um, not messed around and tampered with and kept, but he actually ties love to the law Uh, So yes, if we can read 1 John 14, 15. I taught that to my kids when they were small. If you love me, we changed it a little bit. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how you express love. So now we begin to see the relationship of love to the commandments. If you love Christ, this is how you express it. That's a very important point. because there are so many people who want to love God however they choose to love God. And no, Jesus tells us, how should we love him? It's very interesting, the second commandment also tells us how we are to worship him. And so many people sit there and say, yeah, that's nice, but I want to worship him this way. If you want to learn how to love Jesus, he tells you, keep my commandments. How about uh, verse 21, whoever's got that? All right, thank you, Rob. Yep, so there you get a pretty good picture. Uh, Jesus is not playing around. If you want to show love to him, you keep his commandments. Doing anything else that you think will be um, loving, you may be very sincere, but you're going to be sincerely wrong. So lying and doing that, you know, for example, because you think you're protecting somebody out of love, isn't going to fulfill it. Now, let me ask you this. This is not a question on ethics, but... I mean I'm sorry this is not a class on ethics but we can maybe get into it you've all heard the the prototypical example of situational ethics it's World War II and um, you know you're you're in in uh, in Holland and uh, you're hiding some Jewish folks in your cellar right and then you open up the door there's the stormtroopers Their little gray uniforms you know um, well I mean that's what they're called they're stormtroopers right and <clears throat> that's, that's where Watson's name, George Lucas, he, you know, the uniforms for the empire were all based on Nazi uniforms. So, you know, there's a couple of stormtroopers out there with their, um, uh, you know, MP41s or whatever those were. And um, they're looking kind of bad. And they're asking, do you have any Jews hiding in your house? What do you do? You would lie. Would lie. So what would you <clears throat> define, that, define that lie? What would you say? so you would tell them no and you believe that you have lied so you it's okay then to I didn't say it's okay Okay so you're you're the school of I've done wrong and I'll go I'll go um I'll pay the price for that. I'll, I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness later Rob you want to I'll I'll clear it up right here it's it's really quite simple so here's the the issue clearly Jesus would not put us in a situation where one thing pushes against the other right where you have to surrender because first of all, it means that you have to determine which is the greater evil. And we're never told that, ever. This commandment supersedes that commandment. It's just lo- you know, loving your neighbor, loving God, and so on. Um, in fact, you're taking two of the love your neighbor type commandments, we're gonna see here in a moment that they come under here. You're taking the one about protecting life and the one about the sanctity of truth of speech, and you're determining which one is more important than the other. We're never told to do that. So it does present something of a problem. I didn't write it up there, but let us uh, if somebody can find 1 Corinthians 10.13, I'm pretty sure my memory's not too shot with all this medication. So 1 Corinthians 10.13, and if somebody finds that and you're looking at it and nobody else is reading, that means you were predestined before the foundation of the world to read it and just jump right in and read it. Okay, so there's three things in that little passage. The first thing is, you never face anything that nobody else has faced. No. Nobody else has ever had to deal with this. Jesus faced every temptation that you ever faced, at the very least. At the very least. And he passed, so it's possible to pass. That's the first thing. The second thing it tells us is that he never will push you beyond what you can bear. He knows our limits. Think about that. That means that every time that you've sinned and you come up with the idea of, I had to, I'm just so weak, I just, no, you're just a, you, cho- you chose to you could have resisted. But the third one is the one that's very important. He always provides you a way out. There is never a situation where in order to satisfy the demands of love, you must sin. Ever. And you see that right there in the Word. So, this is not a class on ethics. I would normally take a whole class just to unfold what I'm about to say. Uh, So, we're going to just have to take it at face value. I know you all trust anything I say, and you frame it and and, and study it. But no, realistically, um, in wartime, if you're a Christian general, right, and you're going to go take that hill, you tell five of you know f- five of your men, hey, you go this way, and you set off some charges or you do something. You it's a called the feint, not as in, you know, faint, faint, but feint feint, but f e i n t. You go that way, you make it look like our troops are going on this side of the hill. And while you're doing that, and the enemy starts turning over there, we'll come along this side, right? So are you required as a Christian, unless you're Lyndon B. Johnson, to tell the enemy what you're about to do? No, that's not lying. The German Nazis knocking on your door, that's a wartime situation. So when you rightly tell them No, I don't have any Jews here. You're not lying to them. Lying, and this is where it takes a little while to unpack this, but we'll see it because the shorter catechism, and even better, the larger catechism. larger catechism, by the way, is the best commentary on the Ten Commandments you're going to find anywhere. Uh, The shorter catechism is just the short version of it, but you're going to see as we unpack it, lying or the idea of sanctity of speech is that you tell the truth in those circumstances in which you're expected to tell the truth. And guess what? Wartime is not a circumstance in which you're expected to tell the truth. Um, so, you did not lie, but it actually shows the 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, thing is true. You're never put in a situation uh, where you have to do something that contradicts love. And now, let's get back to all this. This is what we're seeing all throughout this, is that Jesus is telling you, you need to be perfect, you need to obey, the law is, you know, um, inviolable, it's not going away, you have to fulfill it, anybody who doesn't fulfill it, and, you know, so on and so on. And then he comes and he tells us in these passages out of First John uh, 14 that if you love me, you will keep me. Uh, who's, I'm sorry, you know what we did not read? First John 5 3. Who's got that one? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not Okay, thank you. And I should have thrown that in with the rest. So you have this very, very clear picture then that the keeping of the commandments is the expression of love. These are not divorced. Anytime that you feel like you need to divorce them, then you're not, mis- you're, you're not understanding you know, either the law or you're not understanding love and that kind of stuff. The last way that I can uh, kind of uh, emphasize is to look at the life of Jesus himself. Was there ever anybody who loved more or more perfectly than Jesus? No, right? I mean, his very life is the exemplar. It is perfect love, exemplified all the time. If that were true and the principle that sometimes you must, for the sake of love, break the law, you would have expected that Jesus in his, perfect, in his perfected love would have had to have broken the law. But what do we see Jesus always doing? He's the one who also perfectly keeps the law. So you have an example just in Jesus alone that always keeps the law and yet is the most loving person ever. So in order for him to keep the, lo- the law, I'm sorry, in order for him to be the most perfect, loving person, he never had to break the law, so neither should you. You see how that works? His very life uh, certainly is in line with all the scripture passages we just read, but it, it completely breaks down, this whole uh, idea of situational ethics. Um, I did not write that up there, but remember that Jesus in Hebrew 4.15 uh, says that he was like us in every way, yet without sin. Um, and I point that out just to sit there and say that we don't see him breaking the commandments. Now, somebody might sit there and say, yeah, yeah, he was without sin, but sometimes when you break the commandment under these circumstances, now, Mike didn't say that, but there have been people who've argued that um, that if I lie under certain circumstances for the sake of love, then it's not sin. And you've got to deal with something like 1 John 3, 4, where it says sin is the transgression of the law. So John is very clear. Uh, transgressing the law, not doing what the law says, is sin. Again, unequivocal statements, not you know under certain circumstances and so on. So Jesus' very life leaves us with a very clear example of perfect love, and that perfect love was expressed through perfect keeping of the commandments. So, before I move on, questions, comments, heartache, anything? And we're going to get at that in just a moment in the second half of this. We're going to actually touch upon how those two feed off of one another or maybe build off of one another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think if you find anybody, let's put it this way, if you love yourself with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you might lead yourself to sit there and say, yeah, I may have to disobey the law in order to be loving but if you truly do love god with all your soul mind and strength uh you will not break the law Uh, i think that's very clear in the stuff that we've said anything else just a little louder jack i'm sorry I'm just having trouble hearing so they're they're jewish that's their ethnicity race whatever um which shouldn't be ignored but the nazis they're considering them jewish for for based on sinful intent And viewpoint so it's their racism so would that in and of itself mean that you're saying I don't have Jews here because we're all created in the image of God but yeah I I think that's just an attempt to justify I see where you're going with that but that's that's a whole lot more nuance that I think you have to be that's a way of saying well here's how I can tell them that and not lie I'm just saying you don't even have to think that you just say no got no Jews because it's a wartime situation And you haven't lied. Um, I don't think you have to think about whether, because they they see Jews as subhuman, and therefore, I mean, they're asking you if the subhuman pigs are in your, you know, you know what they're referring to, even if you don't agree with. So it would still be a lie under those rules. But the good thing is, and and maybe we'll do a class on ethics here. Um, I've done that probably 10 years ago. And we do talk about situational ethics, and we do unpack that. I would say it's a feint. Most of the Dutch nuns just didn't have a whole lot of guns. Uh, That's part of the problem. I saw a hand uh, Rob. That that is part of the problem with situational ethics is you become God Um, Well, even even if they're not thinking that let's say that that it's not um, a racist thing Yeah, let's say it's not racist things Um, Then then it won't matter you don't aid and abet somebody in committing um, You know and themselves doing criminal behavior uh, or wicked and evil behavior uh, we'll look at that when we get to the Sixth Commandment. So I'm just going to ask you guys to hold off because I, I said normally this is, you know, if I do a class on ethics, we'll unpack that. And we will unpack it a bit more as we get to those sorts of things. Uh, I was I'm sorry, I still couldn't hear you. Something about right and wrong? Yeah, exactly. Uh, who knew? Who knew? We, we needed them. Uh, We've known as long as we've had Democrats. Um, <clears throat> so uh, let's move on. One of the other things to look at that's um, incorrectly understood is that the Ten Commandments are, in fact, a unity that applies to the Old and New Testament alike. Some people oh, was that a hand? Oh. No, just, just making yourself look—you <laughs> you look fabulous. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, one of the wrong things that you see again and again is this idea that the— uh, Ten Commandments were just for the people of Israel, and it was the requirement for them to become God's people. So they were required to obey, and that's how they were saved. And our dispensational brothers teach that, and Scott touched upon that a few weeks ago when he was going through his dispensational class. So under, especially if you can read Schofield and Ryrie, some of the newer dispensationalists out of DTS are softer on that, but classic dispensationalism that's still in all those study Bibles will teach that Jews were saved by the keeping of the law. But the Ten Commandments has that preface that we just read, right? And that preface is so absolutely powerful. And the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what it's telling us right there at the very beginning is the law is given to them when? Before or after they are redeemed? After. And it's exceedingly important. It's... Um, Uh, It changes the whole perspective on on the place of the law. So it's not something that they had to obey in order to be redeemed. They have been redeemed, brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. God meets with them and says, now that you are my people, a redeemed people, let me tell you how redeemed people behave. And remember we talked last week about the moral law having this normative use of, uh, somebody, I think it may have been Timothy, who's probably back in there doing some Timothy things, mentioned um, that there's another name for that. I called it the normative use of the law. He, I think, was the one who said pedagogical, right? Is that, you guys are taking the exam today? Pedagogical use, right? Uh, the teaching use, the, um, I like the idea of normative because it's not just that it's teaching, but it's setting the norm for how we're to behave. Because you see, we're not, la- we're not saved by the law, but we are saved to the law the law becomes that which tells us I mean, if I asked you do you all know perfectly how to how to show love to God we would have to say no we don't so God sits there and says well here here's how you obey me here's my Ten Commandments and if you do this if you want to show love to me this is how you do it and so the Ten Commandments then serves as a guide rather than being like an axe an executioner ready to chop your head off because I didn't keep the law perfectly and all that you've already been redeemed we already know that you're a sinner. We already know you don't deserve anything. But Jesus covered that. You're his. You're adopted. And now the teacher, the, the law comes as a teacher, Paul says. And it instructs us and shows us. And it's a marker. It's a yardstick. Am I really loving my neighbor? Oh, I've been stealing from him, you know, plugged into his cable. Nobody does anymore. But uh, and to his Wi-Fi, I've been stealing his, you know, Max or Paramount Plus or whatever. Whatever the latest version is of that. Uh, ooh, let me, let me measure. Ooh, wait a minute. I've been messing around with that other girl even though I'm married. Maybe that's not love. You know, that kind of thing. So the law is a, is a yardstick now, and you measure your behavior by it, and you can see whether you're truly loving God and loving your neighbor. Does that make sense? So that's a very important other thing that we need to pick up from this, is that the Ten Commandments are applicable through all the ages, and even in the Old Testament, it was not meant as a do this and you'll be saved. It is you've been saved, therefore do this. And that really shows that it's incumbent upon us, actually, as saved people to do that. It's not optional. It actually expresses, Jesus has all these examples of you'll know the the tree by its fruit, right? So that is how you can judge. Elders in the church, for example, when we have to deal with church discipline, uh, we can only deal with what's in front of us. And if a person's behavior consistently shows that they're out of accord with God's Word, that's what you use to judge. We can't judge the heart, and we never claim to, but we judge the behavior. Uh, Now, all all elders that are wise recognize that all of us sin. Paul speaks about that in in Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's exactly what I end up doing. But we we see a pattern of grace in a person's life. Where they're growing in grace, where their behavior is becoming increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. When you don't see that, then you sit there and you say, The evidence doesn't seem to be there. So all right. That's just one point. I got one more to make, but questions on that. Ten commandments applies to you, applies to me, applies to the Jews in the days of Moses, applies to the Jews in the days of David, and applies to every Christian, you know, since Christ came on this earth. Yeah, is that all good? okay last thing that we want to uh, look at oh wait wait we did have a Luke twelve forty-five passage 12 48 can somebody read that okay thank you uh, that's just the passage that basically says we've been entrusted with the law we've been entrusted with more we more than anybody else are expected to live it out that's that's why I had that sorry I kind of almost skipped that okay the last thing to look at is how the law itself actually works and breaks out the perfection of this law and um, there's several things, like I said, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments in detail, but there's several things we can say now uh, about them as a whole. And one of those I already kind of said at the beginning, which is that the Ten Commandments as a whole is the will of God expressed. It's the whole will of God. There's, there's nothing more that you need to add to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments isn't just a good start, right? It's it. That mean, that's the whole of it summarized in those two great commandments. So you don't need anything more. We don't need to add to it. They are necessary, to use the terms of logic, necessary and sufficient, right? Remember all that from your 10th grade logic class? Uh, So um, because of our time, I'm just going to say that much. Uh, The 10 commandments are sufficient. You don't need anything else. Uh, And I say that again because you might think, well, that's those liberals who do that. But evangelicalism and fundamentalism especially there has been Ten Commandments plus, plus. I gave you already one example. Uh, you know, do not drink. Well, I'm sorry, does not tell us that in Scripture. So it is a going further than the Scripture. Okay, the other thing then to note, getting to this, is that the order of the Ten Commandments is not optional. It's a divinely inspired order. The other day we were in Bucky's. We took uh, Mary Jo's brother, Fabio. He was utterly am- He had never seen a hundred gas pumps, you know. <laughs> 100 gas pumps, and wait till you go inside. And we go inside, and you know, they, they sell all those little homey craft country things, whatever, and they had something like the Cowboys' Ten Commandments. And it was roughly the Ten Commandments, roughly, except, you know, the one that always gets short shrift is, you all know, Fourth Commandment, show up at church, check that box, show up at church, and the rest of the day, football and whoever, went. Okay, but he had them all, whoever did it, it was all out of order. Well, I'm sorry, that's like messing with, God's revealed will that order is very very specific key passage probably should highlight it let's read this one nice and slow in fact in God's providence it also happens to be a passage in the sermon ooh but uh, who's got Matthew four ten? okay so you see Jesus saying worship the Lord your God and serve him these are the two aspects of the Ten Commandment that re- Ten Commandments that really stand out uh, the law expresses that will so we're told that we're to worship God and serve him alone him only and the 10 commandments explains how we do that notice though the order first of all at the center is God we worship him and we serve him now there's several things that I want to say here first of all we got the first you know first few commandments And uh, do I have time to do this? It was all these cool things I would have done, but I think we're out of time. So, I'm just going to do this. The first commandment tells us the object of our worship. Who are we supposed to worship? God and God alone. The second commandment tells us the manner in which we're to worship. You know, how we approach God. The third commandment tells us the attitude that we're supposed to have as we worship God, an attitude of reverence, right? Uh, that kind of thing. And again, I'm just kind of ripping through this. Uh, what we do in the time of worship is in the fourth commandment, right? What, what happens during that time? <clears throat> the fifth commandment speaks about God-given authority. I'm just gonna write these one words here. There's so much more we could say, but we won't do that. The sixth commandment deals with life. The seventh commandment deals with marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of property. Yes, uh, socialists, it's actually in the Bible. <clears throat> no, really, it, uh, it is. The sanctity of speech. And then the tenth commandment is the rule of contentment. This thing is moving on me. There we go. Okay, but the point is, some people have often said that the table of law, you know, it, there's talks about being two tables of the law, the one through four and five through ten. And you've sometimes heard it said that these uh, here is are the commandments that deal with God. Have you ever heard that? First table of law deals with God. And then these all deal with neighbor. Oh, okay, okay. There's something there, but it's not completely satisfactory because it really misses out that in reality they're all about God. What they do is they show you, first four, how you worship God. And then, actually number four is both worship and serve. So four through ten shows you how you serve him. You say, wait a minute, it's talking about how I deal with people. Again and again, if you've been in this church long enough, you know you've heard me say, the way we worship God, I'm sorry, the way we serve God is how we treat other people. God doesn't need us to serve him. We don't have to go fetch his slippers and bring him the paper in the morning and, you know, bring him his coffee. He doesn't need anything. The way we serve God is by loving others. So that's a very important point when Jesus tells us in Matthew 4.10, worship and serve. All these commandments are primarily about our worship. The fourth, to some extent, and five through 10 are all about how we serve him. Is that all good? The key thing to pick up on this is that God is at the very center. Now, it's been said, and I think rightly so, that the, um, the commandments, the order is very important. Each one starts with uh, God is a very direct object, and then it gets, he gets more indirect as you go on. So there's nothing more direct than saying God is the one you worship. Well, how do you worship? still has to do with God, but it's not as direct as yet. So you, you keep going each, t- each stage, you're getting a little further away from God directly being addressed. More indirect, but he's, but he's in there. And as the numbers uh, go down, that idea of God being more directly addressed in the commandment decreases. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean it's less important. So we're not numbering and saying well, the eighth commandment is much less important than the first commandment. And in fact, we know that. Because, because, because. Uh, who's got James two ten? Okay, so there's a unity there to the law that disobeying one thing means you've disobeyed it all. Well, it's just God just saying, I'm going to get you for the whole thing. You know, when when you got you guys watch cops, and I know that's the only time you ever see this because none of you ever do anything wrong. So it's only on cops that you realize that when they get, get some of these bad guys, they throw the book at them. They, you know, for resisting arrest, for chewing gum, you know, and they to just get you for everything. Is that what God is doing here? Yeah, you lied, but I'm going to go ahead and throw the book at you for everything else. No, it actually is all tied in, and we can see that. Who's got Colossians 3.5? All right, so Paul matches covetousness, number 10, the very last one, with idolatry number one. And he tells us that when you fail to do that, you're failing to do this. And in one sense, it's been said that this is primary. That's why I'm saying there's actual divine order to this. And again, we could probably take a lot longer to establish this, but we'll see it as we unpack them in the weeks to come. So every every one of the commandments that you fail ultimately means that you've committed idolatry. Because in the end, that's, you know. so if you sit there and you say uh, Lord I'm going to cheat on my wife <clears throat> because here's what you're really saying when you do something like that because I'm not satisfied with what you've given me it's not enough uh, therefore thank you for your advice about just having one mate I, I choose what I think is best anytime you do that you've displaced God from the throne in your heart and you've placed something else yourself, your lust, your desire, whatever and now that's on the throne so you've committed idolatry Every time you lie, you're basically saying, Lord, I don't really trust that telling the truth is gonna be good for me. Uh, I think I need to go, you know, so every single time you're asking Jesus to just step aside for just a moment as you take center stage. That's what every sin is ultimately about. So in every sin, you commit idolatry. So anyway, it's 10.05, we're past our time. Uh, Hope that I've established the fact that it's really a unity, but there is a divine order to the commandments, ultimately God is at the center. And I don't think it's wrong to necessarily say the first table is one through four, because uh, people think the table meant, you know, like the, that the two tablets that, Jesus, that Moses gets at, Ten Command, at, at, at Sinai. No, the two, the, whenever you hear people talk about the two tables of the law, they mean one through four, five through 10. And I, I can see, okay, these are the ones dealing with God. These are the ones dealing with uh, neighbor There's something to be said with that, but I think I'm going to use Jesus' words to much more structure, worship and serve, and in both cases, God then becomes the center, and a violation of any of them really is a violation against God himself. That's who you do violence against. They start with the most direct dimension of God, and he becomes more indirect as you go along, but it still has to do with this. Okay, so let's stop there. Questions, comments, anything you want to uh, chime in on? Yes, Ann. What about um, changing the word a little bit for children? Oh, you know, one of the things we're going to see as we go through the... the, the Ten <laughs> yeah, as we go through the Catechism, you're going to see that the Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law. So when you say something like, um, do not commit murder, Right? Am I then justified? I'm going to give you the answer now. Am I then justified, you know, here's my neighbor, and uh, he's getting attacked, and somebody's killing him, and I sit there and say, I'm not murdering him. I'm good. No, I mean, either you're able to stop the, the attack, or you pick up the phone and you call for help or something, right? So we have an obligation to protect life and to help that person, right? In other words, the language, do not murder, is not everything. It's a summary of that commandment. So we can, if if it makes sense to change that for a child, for example, or for us, and to say the commandment means protect life and guard it under all circumstances, then you've, that's fine. Because those words do not murder, and I'm not trying to belittle them. I mean, they're God's inspired words. But they are a summary of that commandment, if that makes sense. So, yes, I think it's appropriate to Use the language that makes sense. You don't go to kids who are, you know, five and tell them do not commit adultery. And then they begin, well, it's adultery. Well, it has to do with sex. Ah. Of course, the public schools doesn't matter. They probably know more and they'll teach you. But um, for those of us who still are reverent, yeah, you want to you say be married to only one person and love that person forever. You know, and you start. So, But, but you're not lying. i Has he? You're not really messing with the whole thing. You're actually... Summary. You're just you're giving another aspect of what that summary is. Do not commit adultery. So I think that's fine. Other anything else that we need to? Yes, Sydney. Well, it comes from Jesus, um, and our Roman Catholic friends I think really do mess up. They do combine these two, and then they split the tenth into two different commandments. So they got two commandments dealing with contentment, and then they mess up object and manner. But they have to do that because you got to remember. Uh, they do idol, they do, the the manner doesn't really matter to them. They um, have statues and popes and all these other things. When you have them as two separate ones, we can tell them, hey guys, you've got it right. God is the one that you're, well, no, because then they do marry. So, but even even when they're just doing God and then say, yeah, but the manner, and the manner is very clearly spelled out and you're not doing that. So for them, it makes it much easier to squish it together and to, Kind of erase the distinctives of this, who you worship, how you worship, the attitude, a reverent attitude, what you do during that time of worship, so anyway, I don't know if that helps to explain it.: Oh, like when did it actually happen? that's a good question I'm not a hundred percent sure. Does somebody know Scott, do you happen to know that uh, I'm not sure. It, yeah, maybe maybe it's Trent. I, I'll have to take a look if it happened during uh, the Council of Trent, maybe. But I'm not 100% sure on that. There was one more, and that'll have to be the last one. I thought I saw it one hand. Indeed. Yeah, and appropriately so. It should be our prayer as well. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up there, guys. Thank you. <clears throat> Next week is the last Sunday school for the year, because then we take the 24th off and the 31st off, because it's like, you know, Christmassy and stuff. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do the first commandment because then you won't get me after I'm going to have surgery on the 3rd of January and I won't be back. So I don't think we're going to be doing this. Now, any one of our elders can teach this and we haven't really talked about what we're going to do. We're going to talk about it this week. I may not do... Okay, we'll see next week. We may do this. We may do something fun. Uh, we'll see. Let me go, go ahead. This is fun. Thank you for the affirmation. We, we may be do something Christmassy fun. Who knows? Uh, okay, let's go ahead and pray and we'll wrap things up. Father, we thank you for your perfect law, and it is indeed perfect, and it does uh, show us how we can love you, and we confess. We're the first ones to say that we do not love you as we ought. We do not love one another as we ought. We do not worship you. We do not serve you as we ought, and yet in your grace, uh, you accept us because of what Jesus has done for us, and it is his record that we now carry around. What an amazing act of grace that you have lavished upon us. Father, we do long, however, Uh, In our renewed natures to to do what's right, Uh, even though we recognize, as Paul does, that that old nature is still in us. And so we cry out, uh, uh, what will I do with this body of death? And we also cry out, like with Paul, thanks be to God that Jesus is the one who not only redeems, but who then sanctifies. And so we pray that you continue to work in each and every one of our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, which is to say to conform us to a people who love you and who obey you. If we do that... We will be satisfied. We pray these things, Father, in his name. Amen.